when I was an editor, I don't know that I ever got a call about an AIDS story, except from a victim or a family of a victim. Everyone needed to know about that. A lot of people were first found it distasteful to even talk about it, but they needed to know about it. Well, I worry today that in our own curatorial moment, we, we make no room for that story because we don't, we don't want it. Welcome back to Carlos Explains America. Today, we'll go a bit further into media trust. Last time, we talked about what's costed, how media distrust has been such a powerful tool for politicians, what role the tech revolution has played, and how the attacks from some quote-unquote news organizations against others have deepened the trust crisis. This time, I want to share with you my conversation with Gene Polisinski. Gene was one of the founding editors of USA Today back in 1982, He's a very experienced journalist, has lived through this trust crisis, and is now the director of the Museum Institute in Washington, D.C. The Institute evaluates media trust, but they also check on the state of the First Amendment, including freedom of expression and religion. We met at the Museum Institute's offices in Washington, D.C., just by the mall, and we talked about a whole lot of things, including what media distrust has looked like from his perspective, but we also spent a good amount of time discussing the importance of fair objective media and what the future looks like. Contrary to last week's guest, Gene Polisinski is very optimistic that the media will recover from this trust crisis. But don't let me spoil anything. Here's my chat with Gene. From your experience, how has the respect and the treatment of the media changed from 1982 to our day? I think... Uh, the difference between 1982 when we started USA Today and now, in a way, is the public expression of respect for journalists, uh, mostly. And then I think probably to some degree the, the underlying respect as well. Uh, in 1982, journalism was somewhat fresh off the Watergate years. Uh, the, yeah. you know, there was the heroic movie with Dustin Hoffman and mm-hmm. Robert Redford. Uh, but overall, I think people still saw journalism as an honorable profession in which people labored to bring people the truth. There was still, I think even then, uh, an undercurrent of some people who saw various kinds of cabals in media, the liberal media of the East, uh, which was actually a mask, I think, for anti-Semitism, frankly. Um, You had Western, uh, particularly Republicans, even in that time, think that the media, regardless of, you know, it it wasn't really anti-Semitic as much as it was just dominated by networks and others headquartered in the East that didn't really understand the West. So, you know, there was criticism, there was a lack of respect, you might say, or or disrespect. But it was was founded maybe a bit in reality. You you had a bureau in Los Angeles. I mean, you didn't have an office. You had a bureau. You had a bureau in Beirut and a bureau in Nairobi and a bureau in L.A., you know, and there, and there was a little bit of that. And you never had a Des Moines Bureau. And so there was genuine reason for criticism and an undercurrent of criticism. Uh, but fundamentally, if you showed up and said you were a reporter from the New York Times or, starting in 1982, a reporter from USA Today or the LA Times, there was a little bit of, okay, okay, you're here to do a certain kind of job. You're, you know, your reporting might be skewed by just the geography of where you live, but it wasn't a deliberate, you know, d- a distortion and certainly not an enemy of the people kind of feeling in most places. 
fast forward now to when we're talking, and I think there has been a concerted uh, multi-year effort to discredit journalism, to say that any journalism is colored by, uh, first by bias, before any professional considerations come in. Mm -hmm. And some of the arguments have grown quite sophisticated over the years. And you find, I think, greater acceptance. Our poll, uh, which we do every year and have done every year since 1997, the state of the First Amendment, mm -hmm. frequently asks a question about media bias. And we find that, that uh, more people felt media bias uh, was extant in decisions every year. Last year was interesting. The number actually went down. Hmm. But we think that that might be the terrible irony of people living in thought bubbles now, so that they get most of their news off the web, and they only get news from web sources that echo their own beliefs. So naturally, they seem a little more credible because, well, of course, that must be true. That's exactly how I feel. You know, so that we are having this year, I think, to deal with media bias questions in a different way, because just you can't assume anymore that everybody watches one of the three networks or a local newspaper that you know they may only get their news from MSNBC or Breitbart or, right. you know, and, and of course they think that's credible so I was cautioning our newsroom colleagues not to be too proud of the fact that credibility or bias numbers went down just right. because it might be for the wrong reasons. I was looking at some numbers, and I think in the 1970s, Gallup had a, a poll that showed that media trust was at somewhere around 73, 74%. Sure. Uh, the number these days, 50%. Mm -hmm. I spoke with um, Jonathan Ladd from uh, Georgetown University. He, he, he pointed at politicians' attacks towards news organizations, right. but also attacks from some news organizations right, against right. other news organizations. Yeah. So what's your stand on that? What do you think uh, has caused the, the, this? I, I don't disagree. You know, I think the fundamental reason people were vulnerable to those attacks is they weren't delivering what they used to deliver. Again, I think it's the lack of the range and scope and depth of news reporting. I, I think there's no question that it's not a single factor. Uh, I mean, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew attacked the press in as real and daily a term as Trump does. But you didn't have, I think, vulnerable news operations the way you do today. No single factor is going to produce a, that decline in respect. Politicians have done it for a long time. In competing worlds where, and today it's hard to talk about this in a way, Chicago had four newspapers, two morning, two afternoon. They would attack each other on occasion. What's really different today, I think, is that, first of all, the message goes unfiltered. I mean, politicians had to attack the press in the press. They had to also somewhat limit, I mean, even Nixon didn't refuse to speak to reporters. He still had press conferences because it was the only way to get your message out. Well, today, you just tweet. And this decline in trust is the product of a great many factors, not any one, which also makes it very hard to solve. You know, I think there is a concerted political effort that began in maybe around the 1950s, again, around Nixon, Western Republicans, to discredit network television as Eastern-dominated. In those years, there was a bit of anti-Semitism with that. Oh, those people from New York. Well, that was a code word for the myth of yeah. Jewish control of the media. Uh, so it has its roots in very slimy kinds of criticism. You do have a focus on cable television which is uh, not really news. I mean, I'm sorry, they talk about the news, sometimes they even bring you the news if something happens during their time. But they're just talk shows. 
and chat shows. But they're not a news report. Have they skewed the concept of media that people have? They didn't start out this way, I think, because they just thought about mass audiences. But now you literally have the echo of the web. If there's a Fox ardent viewer who stops watching Fox to go watch Rachel Maddow, I want to shake their hand <laughs> uh, because I, I, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I will joke sometimes that the remote is the least used tool in the in the in the in the home. Yeah. You should just have a great big switch on off yeah. because they, it's on Fox or it's on MSNBC. Except when you turn over to watch some sitcom or something. Yeah. I mean, you don't need many buttons on your remote these days. I think in most homes, yeah. uh, because it's 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 done what the web has done. It has polarized an audience. So you're talking about polarization. Um, we are seeing, like you said, um, media or news polarization, right. and we're also seeing political polarization. Yeah. I wanted to ask you what the relationship is between the two. Yeah, or first or of all, media yeah, it's not the it's not media leading to polarize politics. Uh, I don't know there's ever been a moment in our nation's history where whatever the media of the moment led the circumstances. I mean, it's mm -hmm. as foolish as saying that the media was responsible for the civil rights movement. Yeah. No. There's money in them, their hills, and that's what has led to cable television or led the web or whatever, uh, because we live in an environment now in which politicians discovered that in order to raise vast sums of money that they now think is necessary, to run a, mount a campaign that they have to be ever more to the right or left of the person they're running against or the, anybody else in their field because then they'll get the most money because the most polarizing message often brings in the most supporters yeah. um, and certainly the most ardent supporters. Uh, so the myth of somehow that we're a polarized society thanks to you know the rise of Fox or the rise of MSNBC, that's hooey. This society was on a path toward polarization, and and has always been in some ways. I mean, we forget my very first presidential campaign was George Wallace, and I saw in my hometown of South Bend, Indiana, what today we might call the Trump thirty percent, emerge from the woodwork, the places I had hoped they had never been, to to chant racist slogans. Uh, they were just quiet. We talk about a polarized society um, on race on other kinds of issues. I think it's always been there. I think politicians increasingly learned how to exploit that. And, and with the need to raise large amounts of money, there was even a greater incentive to leave the others behind. I mean, right. Wallace had 30%, 15%, whatever you want to say he had, and he was trying to get the other 85%. Today, I think you, you see a Trump who's satisfied with 35 36% and saying, I got them, I locked them in. I am yeah. so far in one direction that I've got those folks. They're not listening to the other side. I'm not going to lose them to the other side. And then all I need to do is grab a certain number that's with a certain issue in order to get elected again. Because that works in our and politics. That, and in, that our, in our political system, it works to get right. stay on top. Right. To you, just and hold on to that. Yeah, I mean, he's not looking at having to get 51. He's having to get 15 if he's at 36. Right. His target is the 15% that may be malleable. Mm -hmm. You know, well... You know, you look at media. Where where do you go today with your if cable or mass media? Uh, maybe you're happy with thirty six percent. You know, I mean, because you can make a lot of money off that thirty six percent. Yeah, it's a known audience, so your advertisers know who they're getting, and you can go out there and say, "Do you want to reach this group?" And they go, "Yes." And say, Give me your money. Here's an ad. Right. So I think uh, you know, media has followed the country. 
into polarizing it, and but it has helped lock it in. Today can be so easily designed just to appeal to that mix. I mean, Breitbart, great yeah. example. I mean, you know, they don't worry about getting liberals in Orange County. Trust me, in Fox News, there's some tiny moment of every year where they worry about can we somehow sell our Fox News product to liberals in Orange County, California? Well, Orange County's conservative in, in, in L.A., in downtown L.A. There, there's some sliver still worries about that because they're a mass medium. Right. Breitbart could give a damn if they ever got anybody in, in Marin County to listen to their newscast. They don't care. It's not their economic model and it's not their news target. So that's a fundamental difference that comes around in terms of how I deliver the news. I pick a target audience. I didn't build it, yeah. but I can exploit it. So up till now, we've talked about a huge transformation in the news industry altogether, which is the flourishing of attacking media and news organizations that just cater to whatever people want to hear. We've talked about why it's profitable, why it's flourished, and what has brought it into being. But if you look around, there's still so many news organizations that are sticking to the fact, that are sticking to the truth. And I'm wondering, why is that? Why are you chasing the money? Well, when we get back, we'll talk about why some are just chasing the news. We'll also talk about why it's important that they do that and what hope there is for the future. We'll be right back. So what incentive is there for, for traditional organizations or even new organizations that are trying, yeah. to, they're yeah. trying to stick to the facts and stick to the center despite... You know, it might be easier to, yeah. to become more profitable by becoming more polarized. Well, this is where we get to my only reason for staying absolutely uh, enthusiastic and positive <laughs> about the future of media. Because yeah. this is a tiny little hope. It, it is the fact that I think in an ever-increasing um, environment of multiple news sources, of polarized media, of... Uh, questions of credibility and honesty and trust uh, that what we will come down to is rooted in a very human need which is why you don't have to fool people you don't have to have an ad campaign we need news we can trust hmm. I mean you know we we have to make decisions about our lives from how much do I pay for a house to how safe is the lunch my kid is getting served at school to do we really need to spend more money on nuclear arms than we do on food stamps? I need to know that. I need to know what will the tax bill really do to me. Uh, that's quite apart from what does the tax bill do to the country or to other people. And right now I'm not getting that, but I know that I need it. And the person or entity, news entity, that figures out how to anticipate that is going to succeed because credibility will be the currency of the 21st century for journalists. That ultimately is why I think we will return to a structure in which it's news I can use, news I can trust, cover the things that are important to human beings. But I also think we have to put some substance behind it because if all I'm getting is it's snowy outside, and my kid's lunch today is peanut butter and jelly, or, or that level of news, which mm -hmm. is important. I'm not getting the things I need to be a citizen. There's a soapbox. I'm figuratively putting it out. Those of you listening can hear me get up on top of that soapbox and say that 
one of the things that has to happen is we also have to reinvigorate our commitment to being this watchdog on government, to being the people who, who tell our fellow citizens what they need to know in order to govern themselves. And again, that's local, national, regional, state, national. We have to get serious about that. Stop going on talk shows where they're pushing you to be radical or glib and sit there and write the damn news and let that be your... You you don't have to be validated by appearing on Chris Matthews' show or on Fox & Friends. Um, Stop, 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 stop. Write the news and go home and then come back the next day and do the same thing. Give people a place where they know whether they like what you say or not there is confidence that you have written it to inform them not to shape policy, which it never did, not to be politically correct, which it never was. Give people the news that they must have in order to be a participant in our democracy and then go home at night and tell yourself you've done a good job. I, I am convinced that that will be financially viable at some point because people need it. What can... Our institutions, and by institutions I mean news organizations, yeah, yeah. as well as us as a society, individuals, right. as well as, of course, our government, right. what can we do to reinstate trust trust in the media and in well, news organizations? Well, let's take government out of the equation. Uh, they've got no role in that. The founders made it quite clear that, you know, you, you just stay the hell out of the way. Thank you very much, government. So let's put them off to the side. I don't want them doing anything. Uh, there have been talks about the Federal Trade Commission and others giving subsidies to newspapers and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you take the subsidy, you can't run editorials right. on candidates because you're supported by public money. So now, no. So government stay out. I think it really is uh, on the on the journalism side of the House, on the free press side of the House, it's doing your job uh, and, and presenting a full menu of news and information that people can can trust. It's not cheap, it's not shallow, it is at times boring, but it is absolutely necessary and get back to the core of what your community needs. And that also means, by the way, covering your community. Not a slice of your community. Don't go for the wealthy white suburbs. Go for your entire community because that's where ultimately your responsibility is. So that means having a diverse staff. I mean, it bleeds out into a lot of changes. You have to have increasingly a diverse staff. It's not just, you know, do a better job. There's a lot of slices to this where... I think real change has to occur in journalism. And then on the consumer side, put down the Kardashians and give a damn. I mean, that's part of it, is is stop using news as entertainment. I mean, it's fine to be entertained by the news, but don't stop there. Demand and then consume the stuff you need to know as a citizen. Stop waiting for politicians to bring you their message. When a story is good, or a news operation is good, support them. And, and get away from the idea that news is free. It's not. I mean, collected news, gathered news, mm-hmm. curated news is not free. Do you think politicians have a responsibility to at least not misinform people in what fake news or accurate news are? I, I will accept that question only because I can turn it around. Voters <laughs> have a responsibility to reject the politicians who don't do that. I'm not going to burden politicians with morality. <laughs> I hope that they are. And the ones that are, I will vote for. But I'm not going to say every politician has to be an upstanding, moral, honest human being. I mean, I understand 
we have a lot of people, and uh, nobody will be totally, I mean, obviously they're totally evil. No, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, somebody who's more comfortable stretching the truth or telling you a lie because it's convenient, I mean, that happens in life. Plus, it's a fool's errand to demand that they all be that way. Right. I mean, you just have to accept the fact that we all wish it so, right. but never going to be. So what's what's doable? It's it's politicians who understand they're accountable to the public, and but more importantly, it's voters who will forget the easy and go for the for the the person they can trust, the honest person, and demand that. So there's an obligation on the part of the citizen to be a news consumer and a voter who cares, who gives a damn, and who has some principles. So, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean journalists have any less obligation to be honest and credible and fair and and do a much better job of covering our communities and whatever. That's all, to me, incumbent on journalists. But it doesn't mean the consumer is this passive vessel that just gets to sit there. You have to get off your ass and do some work. I know a lot of people look at these conversations between journalists and media people and think, oh, that's a journalist and media problem. You know, they're worried because they're going to stop making money. I've heard people say that distrust in media is a symptom of a failing democracy. What do you think? Well, I think there's a great danger. I think that if this was a failing democracy, free media would be among the first things to be attacked. The logic of that statement is, I think, irrefutable. A failing democracy will be highlighted by by a reduced, diminished, attacked, uh, threatened, less effective media. Right now, let's not panic. Uh, We have had politicians on the right and the left who have attacked journalism. Trump does it in a very visible way in new media, and there's kind of a fascination with his tweets that, no, I, again, I don't know that anybody else is really going to be able to replicate. I mean, it's just yeah. been another tweet from another politician. <laughs> right now, he has the ground to himself. Um, I, I will be very worried, much more worried than I am now with all the heat and rhetoric, when there's a genuine attempt to change libel laws in all 50 states to make it easier for politicians to sue critics or or uh, harder for people to criticize people in public life. I want to thank again Gene Posinski for his time, and I want to thank the Nuseum Institute for all they're doing. They call themselves the champions of the First Amendment, and they're doing a lot of things that truly give them that title. If you can't go to their museum here in Washington, D.C., you can go to newseuminstitute.org and learn a lot about them. After this chat, I felt a bit relieved. I know that we're living through times where it seems like everything is falling apart and where freedom of expression is almost abolished. But talking to Gene reminded me that there's no better thing to do than go back to work and do it as best as I can. And still, for this to work, you need to be an engaged citizen. Like Gene said, you need to demand your politicians to respect freedom of expression. As individuals and news consumers, we need to step out of our bubbles. We need to be open to the possibility that our opinion may have a bias or that another outlet might be getting it right. That because I don't like a reality, that doesn't make it any less true. We need to be open to acknowledging that we may be wrong. We need to acknowledge that we may be missing some things. I also want to leave you with a thought that Gene shared with me. It's a brief story that I think really captures what the power of the press is and why it matters to all of us. Thanks again for listening to Carlos Explains America. We'll talk to you next time. When I'm talking sometimes and we talk about the value of journalism, I play a game. 
say, all right, let's imagine, and no, this would never happen to you or me or anybody else, but let's just say we get arrested for a horrific crime. You're alone. Now, you go up to the courtroom, and like most of us, you can't afford the best attorney in town. So you get a, a good attorney, and there the two of you are. You're charged with this horrible crime that you're not guilty of, by the way. You were innocent. And in walks a judge who in some states is elected. So you have to worry that he's running on a get tough on criminals campaign this month. And if you walk out of this courtroom not guilty, somebody's going to say soft on crime. You hope that that man or woman on the bench has integrity and would, would facts will be what they are. On the other table, there's the prosecutor and probably a deputy prosecutor because a big crime, got a lot of attention. And sitting on their side are police forensic experts and expert witnesses. The state has had money to fly in to convict you. And behind them are the police labs and, and yeah. dozens of investigators. You're looking at your attorney and <laughs> they have a 23-year-old legal intern who's done some research for you. Maybe you've even had the money to hire a private detective to gather some evidence for you. So there you are. Your life and your liberty and your fortune at risk. The power of the state arrayed against you with an impetus from some people to say, not innocent until proven guilty, but there was reason to arrest you, so you're guilty until you're proven innocent. And what else sits on your side as a citizen? Well, about eight rows back, there is a man or a woman with a notebook from the press who is going to sit there, and that judge knows that if they just find you guilty so they can get reelected, they're going to be held accountable for that. The public is going to know. That prosecuting attorney, that deputy, those witnesses know that if they shade the law or lie or break the law in order to convict you, they will be held accountable. That's the value of a free press.